0: This episode is brought to you by Chapman University. From climate science to patient safety, genomics to drug design, Chapman University data scientists are turning massive information sets into life-changing impact. The future is unfolding in Chapman's Schmidt College of Science and Technology. Here, masters and PhD students join in cutting-edge research as they prepare to take the next big leap in their professional journey. To learn more about the innovative tools and collaborative approach that distinguish the Chapman program in computational and data sciences, visit chapman.edu slash That's chapman.edu slash All right, let's do this. How are you data scientists and engineers? How are you business people? What's up nerds? Did you grasp that thing you were studying? This is Data Science at Home, the podcast about machine learning, artificial intelligence, and more good stuff. I am Francesco, I'll be your host for the next 30 minutes, so grab a cup of coffee and join me as we learn more about the topics we love most. Welcome back to another episode of Data Science at Home. I'm uh, Francesco and uh, today I'm not alone. I'm uh, with uh, a master of big data analytics. <laughs> Probably many of the folks for listening to this show have heard of him. Uh, Mr. Andy Grove. Hi Andy, how are you doing? Hi Francesco, I'm
1: doing good. Thanks for having me.
0: it's a pleasure no worries at all so um, Andy uh, without uh, further ado I would say that you are very well known to the community of data scientists especially when it comes to big data analytics because you are the author of uh, a uh,
1: a, a framework a platform what is it Apache arrow right (laughs) so I am one of okay so yeah I guess let me give some context so um, Apache Arrow is a project um, that was started by Wes McKinney and some other folks, uh, I think five years ago maybe, or seven years even. Uh, I, pe- I became involved with the project about three years ago. Um, so I, was, um, I decided to try and build something like Apache Spark in the Rust programming language. And very early in that journey, I discovered Apache Arrow and discovered, uh, I guess, all the benefits of using columnar data and Apache Arrow seems to be like, becoming the de facto standard for an in-memory representation of columnar data. It has some other benefits, and I'm sure we'll get into that. Um, but at the time, there wasn't a Rust implementation. It had C++, Java, um, and a whole bunch of other languages that you would expect, but Rust wasn't there yet. So that, that's how I became involved in Arrow. I, I put together the initial Rust implementation of Arrow
0: wow so there are already a lot of keywords here um rust <laughs> yeah rust being probably the 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 most important one when it comes to performance but we'll talk more about that later uh, and then of course big data analytics which sounds, you know it's synonym of large volumes right large volumes of data when we say large volumes of data what volumes are we usually referring to
1: sure so my favorite definition i have heard and I, I didn't come up with this um You can call it big data if it doesn't fit into memory on your laptop so uh, in my case i've actually got quite a lot of memory in my laptop i've got 64 gig so to me anything over 64 gig (laughs) is big data um and that's like kind of one of the first limits you hit but then you have other limits um when you start to fill disks up and there are only so many disks you can fit into a single computer so at some point you need to use multiple computers um, to run your operations, right. so you can scale, kind of scale out. That. So that's, I guess, that's kind of my definition when you need to move from one computer to multiple computers.
0: Makes perfect sense. So it's quite subjective, of course. It's uh, very domain specific, I would say. Um, yes. Andy, what's the state of the art in big data analytics? Uh, what's what's going on there?
1: Sure. So my my view is maybe a little bit biased. I've been involved with Apache Spark. As mostly as an end user and a tiny bit as a contributor um, for I guess around four, four or five years now. Um, So, you know, I'm familiar with Spark and the Spark community, and Spark is, you know, very popular. So, my my answer would probably be that Spark is the state of the art. But but I also know there are some other things out there that sound really interesting, but I just don't have exposure to them. Um, So, for example, there's Dask, which I believe is very popular for scaling up Mm -hmm. in the Python world. So yeah i think those are the two that i'm most aware of
0: yeah definitely dask is something that the 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 folks of python of the python community know very well in terms of services i think uh there are many other you know more commercial products that are kind of you know sisters or daughters of of apache spark in fact right
1: absolutely i mean the most the most famous ones right now are probably snowflake and databricks um and databricks you know they are the original um uh, like creators of Apache Spark, and they have uh, their own version of Spark, which is more of like highly optimized that they host. Um, they have some really interesting things going on. They they've implemented a new uh, columnar query engine in C++ that actually sits underneath Apache Spark, which is pretty cool. So you can write code using Spark, and then if you host it on DataBricks, you get to benefit from their you know their their, their investments in optimization. So that's pretty neat. Um, cool. And Snowflake's very popular. Um, I've used that in previous jobs. Very popular for kind of ETL and just scaling up uh, analytical queries. Right. Uh, What happened to Hadoop? Good question. I mean, I kind of got involved in this world of big data, I think at the point where Hadoop was already starting to decline and Apache Spark was becoming popular. So I don't actually have experience of using the original Hadoop MapReduce. Um, But that was, as I understand it, that was kind of groundbreaking. That was the thing that made it possible to even run these large computations on big data using clusters of hundreds of servers. And it was really neat. Um, The downside was, as I understand it, is that between each stage, there's a lot of uh, persisting intermediate results to disk, which was kind of heavyweight. And Spark's innovation was doing more of this in memory. Um, So suddenly you had these orders of magnitude improvements in some cases.
0: Yeah, well, that was kind of an announcement when when Spark came out in the in the ecosystem, and say, okay, this was like it seems to be the the the, the no-brainer migration right from from adoop services uh, to Spark to Apache Spark.
1: Right, and I think Apache Spark. I mean, the actual design of it is very much the MapReduce model. Still, they just kind of took it right, to the next level. Exactly.
0: Well, Andy, in fact, uh, is also the author of another piece of software that is uh, uh, goes under the name of Ballista. Uh, correct if I didn't spell it right. <laughs> uh, That's perfect. Uh, cool, thanks. <laughs> Phew. All right. So, well, Ballista. But, uh, in fact, before introducing uh, before going into the details of what Ballista is, is a compute engine to start with we should spend a bit more time on on arrow because arrow is in fact the substrate on top of which ballista has been built right absolutely so why arrow and uh, and what are the let's say top features that uh, drove you into the you know large data volume processing sure
1: so when i started on this journey with ballista um the, i was following an approach uh, very similar to apache spark to start with where it was row based so let me explain what that means um, so that, that you know, let's imagine a CSV file. Most of us would think of a CSV file as having like multiple rows of data, where each row is representing some entity, like a customer or an order. Um, so it's kind of a natural way to think about things. If you're running a query and you want to, um, you know, you want to sum, you want to get a total number of, uh, you know, total amount of orders. Um, Typically, we think of reading one row at a time, looking up the piece of data within that row and then kind of adding them together. Um, But I discovered early on that uh, using columnar data is much more efficient these days. So when I started out on this journey, I was actually following Spark's design, which is uh, primarily row-based. So if you imagine you have a CSV file and each line in that file is a row that typically represents some entity, perhaps an order. Um, It's a very natural way to think about data, but one of the disadvantages of this approach is that if if you have a query that's only looking at a subset of the attributes, then it's quite wasteful because you have to read each row into memory and then throw away the pieces of data that you're not interested in. So if we take a, a trivial example, maybe we have a CSV file representing orders and you want to get a sum of all of the orders or maybe you're producing a sum grouped by some attribute. So with row-based, as I mentioned, you're reading the whole row into memory. We're putting particular pieces out to process, which is kind of wasteful. If you have that data stored as columns, then you can just read the order amount column, and you have all of these amounts in memory stored contiguously. So it's very efficient from a CPU cache point of view to get this data onto the CPU. Um, and then you get to, because it's columnar data, so you get to use this thing called vectorized processing and kind of a fancy term, but what that means is on the CPU, there are specific instruction sets called SIMD, which stands for simultaneous inputs and multiple data. And basically if you're operating on, um, so taking this example with summing some values together, um, SIMD allows you to add multiple numbers together with a CPU with a single CPU instruction. Um, so it's just a very efficient way of, of operating on data, it's very scalable. And to take that even further, uh, we have these GPUs now, which are um, kind of like SIMD on steroids. You can load huge amounts of data onto the GPU and then perform op- operations on this data in parallel, and it's yeah, incredibly efficient. So that explains the benefits of using a columnar representation of data. But you also asked why Arrow? And basically, Arrow, in my opinion, is now the de facto um, standard for an in-memory representation of columnar data. So it made much more sense for me to use this to make up my own format. Uh, By using Arrow, it means I have a greater chance of building software that's going to interoperate well with other frameworks that are being developed. Uh, I know there are multiple uh, companies and universities and individuals building uh, products based on Arrow right now. I think we're going to see a lot of this over the next two or three years. So that's that's really the the primary reason. And Arrow makes this uh, really easy because apart from the memory standards, the memory format, it also defines an IPC format for inter-process communication. And this is basically how you share Arrow data between two processes, whether they're the same language or not. And it's essentially reusing the Arrow memory format, but adding some metadata for schema information. So basically describing the shape of the data. Um, so, schema, you typically think of field names and data types and so on. And then, in, in addition to the IPC format, more recently, Arrow has added uh, a new specification for a flight protocol. And this is a GRPC based protocol for exchanging flight data, uh, Arrow data over the network. So that was another like really important um, aspect of Arrow for me for building Ballista. Wow,
0: it's uh, quite a coincidence that I was recently uh, reading um, a book about data oriented design. Uh, It's probably what you applied right in the in the Arrow, uh, you know, designing Arrow exactly.
1: Oh, interesting i haven't actually heard of that book i will be sure to go look look that one up
0: yeah it's yeah in fact it's about you know optimizing um you know your your code for to accommodate you know extensions of, for of, of modern cpus so that you can essentially leverage um uh cmd and uh, uh and new architecture in fact uh, new architecture uh, capabilities uh very interesting so um I know that it's quite hard to do this on a podcast, but uh, can you give an overview of the Ballista architecture uh, so that, you know, uh, the folks out there can understand uh, what does it entail to have uh, to run some uh, data analytics pipeline on, on
1: Ballista Compute Engine? Sure. So the Ballista architecture is actually fairly simple a high level, and it's very much inspired by Apache Spark. So I think it will be familiar to a lot of people. So let's start by looking at it from the user point of view, um, how a user would start to build a query to be executed by Ballista. So right now, there are two, two ways of bu- building a query. There's a data frame API, and you can use SQL. And whichever approach you're using, these are just means for building a logical query plan. So this describes you know, what you want to query, but doesn't really explain how to do it. Uh, from the clients, when you when you say execute, the logical query plan gets sent to the Ballista cluster and within the cluster, there are two types of process. There's a scheduler process and an executor process, and these can be scaled up individually. So the query plan gets submitted to the scheduler and the scheduler's job is to turn that into a physical query plan uh, specifically designed to be run, distributed in a cluster. And the scheduler basically breaks this query plan up into stages, where each stage is a piece of the query that can be executed in parallel across the executors. So the scheduler sends these query fragments to the executors, the executors execute them, and the intermediate results get streamed to disk in arrow IPC format. And the scheduler keeps doing this until the query is finished. And then it sends uh, information back to the client, not the actual result set, but the information that the client needs to go fetch the results from the executors using the arrow flight protocol and this can be done in parallel across the executors. (music)
0: Hey folks, if building software is your passion, you love ThoughtWorks Technology Podcast. It's a podcast for techies by techies. Their team of experienced technologists take a deep dive into a tech topic that's piqued their interest. It could be how machine learning is being used in astrophysics or maybe how to succeed at continuous delivery. They're always coming across fascinating ways technology is advancing and love to share what they learn. Whatever the topic, the discussions are always lively, informative, and opinionated. The team of co-hosts are experienced technologists from across ThoughtWorks, and include ThoughtWorks CTO Dr. Rebecca Parsons and renowned writer and speaker Neil Ford. Each episode the podcast features a guest or two to talk about a particular passion and areas of expertise. Past guests have included eminent technologists like Martin Fowler, Mark Richards, Dana Boyd, and many others. If you like this show, I think you should give ThoughtWorks Technology Podcast a try. To find out more, just search for DotWorks Technology podcast on your podcast platform of choice, and of course, make sure you subscribe. Okay, so now that you mentioned um, uh, the language, you know the language, the programming language that you have used to um, uh, to implement the the Ballista computer engine. Uh, is Rust. And we have already mentioned this at the beginning of this episode and a number of other times in <laughs> in previous episodes. So it seems that Rust is, is taking over. <laughs> Rust is eating the world. <laughs>
1: Some of us would like it too. For sure. Yeah.
0: So, but, well, why, why Rust? What makes Rust a winner in this uh, particular scenario?
1: Sure, so I'll give you just my kind of take on it. Um, so my, my background, my I guess the two main programming languages that I've used um, through my career are C++ and Java. And when I say Java, I include things like Scala, um, that's still JVM. So, and the, the trade-off between those languages, the way, at least the way I always viewed it, um, C++ gives you fantastic performance, um, but you also have to be, it's also very difficult. You have to be very careful about how you manage your memory, um, if you free some memory and then carry on using it, that's bad. If you allocate some memory and then write too much data to it, that's bad and cause, causes all sorts of horrendous bugs and security issues. So it's very difficult. Java, on the other hand, is super productive because it has this garbage collector. So you don't have to worry about all of this memory management. So that's really appealing. But you know, obviously, there's a cost to everything. And the cost is the performance can be very unpredictable. Um, due to the garbage collector pauses when it's cleaning things up. So that's that. So Rust, from my point of view, is kind of the um, the best of both worlds. So Rust has a really unique approach to memory management. So it's, it's a native like systems-level language. You get the same speed as C++, basically. Um, it doesn't have a garbage collector, but it uses an approach called R A I R-A-I-I. R-A-I-I uh, resource allocation is initialization. Um, and the so the compiler basically tracks when you create a piece of memory the compiler keeps track of the ownership of that piece of memory and if you try and um, have two threads using the same piece of memory uh, you, you the compiler will say no you can't even compile a code so it guarantees that you don't get these kind of memory issues that you you could have with C++ if you're not careful um, so there, there's a little bit of a learning curve for sure that's the cost um, but once your code compiles, you know it's safe, and you don't have the performance issues related to garbage collection, and it's also, and also you don't have the the memory inefficiencies associated with garbage collection. So the end result is you have something that's very memory efficient, which is important when you're processing, you know, gigabytes or terabytes of data, and also you get really predictable performance, which I think is important, um, and you know. And, the memory efficiency is really important when you're talking about distributed systems because one of the reasons we run queries across multiple computers is that we can't you know we run out of memory on a single computer of course if you're much more efficient with your memory usage you can do a lot more on a single computer and kind of you know like reduce the overhead of distributed computers
0: well yeah i mean i I also believe that rust is in this case in this particular case as in many others out there for sure um the language of choice (laughs) and uh i I, sometimes i ask myself how could we do it without (laughs) so far (laughs) um uh, andy when when it comes to uh machine learning or data analytics you know we also uh, usually uh, switch the conversation to gpu support right um uh mm-hmm. so graphic processing unit of course and uh, so what's the state of gpu support with um, uh well arrow first and and Balista uh, as well
1: sure so um yeah that's a good question so within arrow i'm not i'm actually not too familiar with the gpu support within arrow i know there is some uh, some kind of cuda stuff in there somewhere in the c implementation i believe but nvidia um has their own kind of data library, a data frame library called QDF. That's C U D F. Mm-hmm. And it's actually based on Apache Arrow. It uses the Arrow memory format. So the beauty of that is, you know, Ballista is designed from the ground up to be Arrow native. QDF uses Arrow memory format. It would be possible to have Ballista hand off pieces of a query to QDF for execution. And I did actually work on a very small POC of this a while back. Um, so QDF is a C++ library, Rust is actually pretty good at wrapping C++ right. libraries. Um, so the way this would work, Ballista would basically need to translate its query plan into a QDF query plan and just kind of hand it off to this library. Um, so yeah, it's definitely something that's possible and I think once Ballista is a little bit further along just with the basics, I think it'd be really interesting to, to look at adding GPU support. Hmm.
0: Interesting. This is super cool actually. Okay, wow. So. Um, Andy, if you want to convince a few folks out there <laughs> to switch to, to Ballista or, well, first of all, to Arrow, uh, you know, most of the time these folks would come from engines like Apache Spark. Um, and mm-hmm. uh, so how, how, would you, how would you put it down? Like, how, how, what are the main differences with, with engines like, like Spark? And uh, what would you say to convince these folks to, to migrate to the new system?
1: sure so first of all i do have to say that the um I, I, I'd, I'd have a tough time convincing them today because Ballista is very early okay. so desk and spark are both you know m- way way more mature than Ballista is today however if you're if you're interested in the if i you know i guess if i want to sell the potential of Ballista, um it really comes down to performance and cost mm. um because of the the choice of arrow and columnar processing and because of the choice of rust uh, once Ballista is more mature, it's going to offer, I, I believe it's going, to be, it's going to have exceptional performance and cost compared to existing solutions. And one thing I hadn't mentioned, um, one of the things I've been very careful about in Ballista, even though I'm a big fan of Rust, I've, I've tried very hard to make it not Rust specific. So even though the scheduler is implemented in Rust, um, it's designed so that any language can be used during execution. So, if you have some Python code you need to call, maybe a UDF, or you need to call some C code, or even Java code, but it's is designed to handle that. So, And it's designed to do it without a heavy cost. Um, so, I mean, Apache Spark, this PySpark, but there's, there's overhead in translating between different data formats. And because this is arrow native, it, it avoids that. So, I'm hoping it will be. Um, You know, I'm hoping it will be a a good choice for JVM developers and Python developers and Rust developers and so Hmm. on. Do you have some
0: numbers to share in terms of performance? Uh, Have you run some benchmarks that we can... Uh, you know assess it's not to judge your work of course but it's just to convince <laughs> sure. to convince the community of people who are stuck with spark or dusk uh, in dusk ecosystems uh, you know out you know eventually to explore uh, these new engines
1: sure so um, we've actually been using some benchmarks um, so we have some analytical queries. Uh, which consists of like multi-table joins and aggregates. They're very realistic kind of real-world queries. Mm -hmm. They're actually loosely based on an industry standard benchmark. And We've been using these to um, drive the functionality in Ballista and in Arrow uh, to make sure we can even run these queries. And We're also using them for our own benchmarking. And I did share some results in a recent talk I gave. So I do actually have some slides. Um, I should put those... I have to figure out where to where to kind of put those so they're more accessible. Um, but what we found so far running against a relatively small data set of around 100 gigabytes, um, you know, about, around half of these queries were about twice as fast as Spark. So that's pretty encouraging. And the other half mm-hmm. were quite a bit slower than Spark. And we, we understand why There's, um, you know, Lister is very early and there are a number of optimizations we need to implement to really make it scale well in all cases. Um, in particular right now we only have one join algorithm implemented which is just a hash join and this involves loading one side of the join fully into memory so that doesn't scale well um, so we need to implement a thing called a you know, either a sort merge join or a shuffled hash join so that we can kind of run the join in parallel um, with smaller pieces being loaded into memory so there's a th- so things like that will improve performance further and yeah I'm definitely excited to see what what things look like once we once we
0: get to that point hmm. interesting and i've been really looking forward to uh, look at these tables and uh, eventually i will mirror them in uh, on in the show notes of this episode um okay cool um well uh, andy when it comes to uh, you know convincing the community f- you know the machine learning community um to migrate to new compute engine the first thing that the first thing they will ask is definitely are there any machine learning specific features uh, supported or implemented? Uh, think a bit like uh, Spark ML Lib um, equivalents, right? Uh, now, sure. when, when will there be a Spark ML Lib equivalent in
1: Ballista? So, that's a great question. So, my, my background, I don't really have any experience with machine learning. I mean, I've taken a few courses, I understand the concepts. Um, but my background has been very much the kind of SQL, ETL, um, side of things so i would definitely be looking for other people to get involved in the project and help drive the ml features and i think it'd be a great opportunity for somebody wanting to kind of expand their skills in this area um so yeah looking for help if anybody is interested in contributing um yeah Get in touch let me
0: know and please do i'm sure that someone will (laughs) uh (laughs) there are a few folks out there that are looking for projects and uh especially open source projects and 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 when it comes to uh, you know these cutting edge uh architectures is always uh, a a pleasure to have new folks uh uh, uh, working on it for sure
1: and if you want
0: to be brutally honest uh what are the major painful points yet to be solved in ballista
1: Sure. So that's an easy one. Um, you know, it's very early and it's kind of interesting. So I've, I've done a num- uh, given a number of talks recently, you know, and including this podcast. And th- this has all happened because somehow the project ended up on Hacker News, um, you know, a few weeks back. Mm-hmm. And there's been so much interest in the project. Um, but I wouldn't have chosen to have the publicity this soon. It wasn't really quite ready. Um, and it's, it's maturing quickly. But this is the pain point. It's, um, it's a project I started. You know, working on it in my spare time. It's grown in popularity. There are, there are multiple contributors now, but there is still a lot of work to do. And, um, and the fact that this is a, a part-time project for me is a challenge. So one thing um, that I'm doing now, I actually sent a message yesterday to the Apache Arrow mailing list, and I'm proposing that we donate the project to Apache um, so that it has, uh, I guess, uh, a more scalable home so that it can um, develop there so yeah. it would be interesting to see what the feedback is there's no guarantee of course that this will happen it's not it wouldn't, be, it wouldn't be my decision it's up to the community but i think that would be the next step now to get the project into a foundation where it can grow and where you know i don't, I don't become a bottleneck on the growth
0: this is super cool. And uh, looking at what happened to Apache Arrow, I mean, the community literally embraced it and made it a de facto standard out there. I assume that uh, there's going to be or there can be uh, quite an interest in, uh, in, uh, in the Ballista Compute Engine as well. Um, nice. Uh, okay, uh, Andy, if you want to provide some context to uh, the community, to the listeners of this, of this show, uh, <laughs> we'll try to do our best to uh, put them in touch with your channels uh if you have some feel free
1: sure yeah i think that the best places to start um would be uh you know on github um so first of all apache arrow so github.com slash apache slash arrow and from there there are links to the arrow website and um there's a great uh there's a mailing list you can join if you want to kind of introduce yourself or um just see conversations between the the contributors and then for the Ballista project it's github.com slash Ballista-compute/slash-ballista, and from there there are links to the Discord server. Uh, that's the main place, really, where a lot of conversations happen. And then, of course, there are GitHub issues. Uh, many of them are tagged with "help wanted," um, so if you're looking to get involved, that would be another another good place to look.
0: That's great, and of course, we will report all the links that you mentioned in the show notes of this episode at our official website, datascienceathome.com. Andy, it was a great pleasure to have you here on the show. I'm uh, looking forward to uh, reading more code of, uh, of yours <laughs> because that's what I learn. Actually, I learn a lot from reading your code. Thanks.
1: <laughs> oh, awesome. That's great to hear. Yeah. And thanks for having me. This was great fun. Thank you. Bye.